You know your country is tiny when you can't have sex without the prime minister finding out about it. Someone had sex in the hospital. Oh, no, was it David from Wellington? Because that sounds like David. The PM collected her thoughts and gave a very sensible response. That was Stephen Colbert on The Late Show in the US last week with a gag that millions of Americans saw on the TV network CBS and it was widely reported as news here as well. But it turned out this week that you can't slip out of Auckland to your holiday home in the Southern Lakes either without the whole country finding out, including the Prime Minister. Aucklanders would take a very dim view of other Aucklanders who aren't doing their bit because they have for a long time and very diligently. More on that particular controversy in a minute. But both those breaches were in the news for the same obvious reason, the risk of spreading the Delta variant of COVID-19. And it was the reason that Australian epidemiologist Mary Louise McClaws told Simon Dallow this on TBNZ One News last Sunday. How concerned should we be? Look, I think you should be concerned, Simon, because Auckland is quite a large city. And people may hear the term stay local, but in fact, they could be moving across, um, you know, 40, 50 kilometres of Auckland. They need to be told, stay within your postcode. You don't want postcode creep. And once Delta gets into different postcodes, it will spread very rapidly if people don't stick to the rules. Now, people all around the country could be forgiven for not knowing off by heart the boundaries of their own postcode, let alone anyone else's, but a trip to Wanaka is clearly creeping beyond for anyone from Auckland. TVNZ's Simon Dallow wound up last weekend with this question for Professor McLaws. Very quickly, what lessons do you think we can learn from Australia's experience and what would you recommend to our government? Oh, don't be like Australia. And that's because there's been a lot less compliance with the science over there, she said, leading to cases getting out of hand in some states. But later, on TVNZ One News that night, Katie Bradford said that not everyone was following the rules here either. And over 600 people have been charged with offences since Alert Level 4 began. Now, Cabinet is, of course, making that last-minute decision tomorrow afternoon. All eyes on whether Auckland will be able to return, go down a level and what that means for the rest of the country. But it's incidents like this that put the rest of country at risk. Well, as we now know, and most people had in fact already concluded, a drop down from Level 4 was not going to happen for Auckland last Monday. But more than 600 people facing charges for breaching the Level 4 rules seemed a bit high. Last week, fresh police figures showed just 204 people had been charged for 219 offences nationwide since Alert Level 4 came into place. The police did say 529 people were warned for 532 different offences, but most of those weren't actually charged with anything. However, just two of those people in particular got more media attention than the others put together, as TVNZ's Katie Bradford went on to report. Well, in a move that's probably going to anger a lot of people and that police describe as calculating and deliberate. A young couple from Auckland who had essential worker status went to the border, got permission, crossed over, drove to Hamilton and then flew to their holiday home in Wanaka. Now, police discovered this and have charged them under the health order that's currently in place. Now, it later emerged that couple hadn't been formally charged with an offence at that point, but public condemnation was strong nonetheless. On Monday morning, for example, TVNZ's breakfast host Matty McLean wasn't exactly reading what was on the auto queue when he said this. An Auckland couple were caught flouting alert level 4 restrictions to fly to their holiday home in Wanaka. I've just got John's voice in my head. Yeah. Dick. Yes. Dick. (laughs) 
and the couple were called a lot worse this past week by an awful lot of New Zealanders. Later on, Queenstown's Mayor Jim Bolt told NewsHub he was filthy about this breach, and soon after his Deputy Mayor Callum McLeod was asked what he knew about the couple on the panel on RNZ National. Uh, they seem to have some sort of horse feed connection, which is what got them out of Auckland into Hamilton. And then somebody that they know, I mean, phoned them up and said, oh, the skiing's great down here, you should come down. The horse feed connection was a big clue there for those who knew some of the rumours and were trying to confirm their names. But by this stage, a QC had been engaged who applied for name suppression for the couple, an apparent described as a high-ranking public official. The couple had already been named and shamed big time for letting down the team of five million on social media. An angst about compliance dominated the panel on RNZ National on Monday. Former TVNZ political editor Mark Sainsbury had issues with the way the media handled the story. But these two, tell me the most interesting thing about these two. I didn't see the word that they were Samoan or Tongan or their race described when they were, um, you know, peculiar way, isn't we? As I'm talking about the media here as well, in terms of how we're sort of treating absconders. And Mark Sainsbury wasn't the only one making that point. The ethnicity and background of people caught up in clusters in Auckland earlier or deemed not to have followed the rules in earlier previous outbreaks certainly was highlighted in media reports, even in the case of the Assembly of God of Samoa Church in Mangari, when no one had broken any rules at all. In those cases, the risk of transmission and creation of new clusters was a big issue, and that turned out not to be a big risk in Wanaka this week. But the couple going legal to keep their names out of the headlines wound up the news media even more, including Mark Sainsbury. And listen, I'm sorry, asking for name suppression, you do something stupid. People do stupid things all the time, they don't get name suppression. I'd be really surprised if there was any justification for that. An hour later on Checkpoint, it was pretty obvious RNZ knew who the couple were. Queenstown-based reporter Tess Brunton even knew where they lived, at least when they're on holiday in Wanaka. So Tess, do we know where the couple are right now? Well, nobody was home when we knocked, and apart from two dogs, but when we spoke to some of the neighbours, they described the actions as selfish, but also with one neighbour saying that they also understand that other people are breaching the rules as well. Might be worth knowing a little more about those other cases. And Checkpoint host Lisa Owen even had the man's phone number. The man in question, who has not yet been charged, hung up when Checkpoint called him earlier for an interview. And as the pylons piled up, so did anger about the suppression. The following day, the news media were watching the clock in the 6pm news hour because the interim name suppression on the Wanaka couple was due to lapse at 7 or become permanent after a new application. But instead... This happened at about 20 minutes to 7. Well, to some breaking news now. The Auckland couple who travelled to Wanaka in breach of lockdown have just released a statement apologising to New Zealand. And at 7pm, News Hub's Giles Dexter, live outside the Auckland High Court, did the big reveal on TV3's The Project. We can bring you their identities. They are show jumper William Willis and lawyer Hannah Rawnsley. Now, they are alleged to have used their essential worker status to take that holiday in Wanaka before they were dobbed in. And having made a big deal of the big reveal, it was all furrowed brows and deep concern on the project, especially for co-host Jeremy Corbett, who's normally the funny man. Like seriously, think about mental health and all these things. Are we paying lip service? Like these, it's going to hurt these people. Yeah. Team, I mean, fair enough, the team of five million, the captain, for her to maybe say something when you make a mistake. <laughs> but 499,999 other people lining up to give it a go as well? Yeah. No thanks. 
And that concern came after people claiming to be the couple's friends spoke up for them on talk radio. The online abuse they were getting was causing them real distress, they said, and was actually one reason that they'd sought name suppression in the first place. Now after that, news websites broke out their breaking news banners on Tuesday to reveal the names, which most people who really wanted to know them already knew if they were online, as News Hub's Giles Dexter pointed out. All you had to do was type in Wanaka into Google, Facebook and Twitter, and their names would come up. And the Herald even had a satirical piece by Steve Braunius ready to roll online, headlined, In Defence of the Wanaka Lockdown Breaches. Though it wasn't really a defence, but tellingly he quoted this from Bill Pearson's classic 1953 essay about the New Zealand character, Fretful Sleepers. There is no emotion we feel so at home in as moral indignation. There is nothing that unites us so much as having someone else to condemn. And Schadenfreude was the main flavour of the day for Seven Sharp's Hilary Barry on Tuesday, after TVNZ had extended One News to reveal the names of Willis and Rawnsley and air their unreserved apology. Oh yes, but I think for a moment I will reflect on that heartfelt apology. Thank you for that. Um, and perhaps we should give a knighthood to the person who dobbed you in. And when News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen hooked into the story, she wanted to know who that was from a local boutique owner. Do you know who dobbed them in? No, I don't. I mean, as you can appreciate, Heather, there's a lot of Wanaka whispers going round, but I'd rather deal with fact rather than um, just um, possibly wondering. Though, judging by Heather Duplessy-Allen's reaction to a text message from a listener soon after, it wouldn't have been a big deal, even if the pair had had COVID. Uh, someone says two or three rule breakers is not important now. I thought Delta is super contagious. So three rule breakers times six equals 18 infected people in the community. Good point. Now, that's not a good point, and as Heather Duplessy-Allen must know, that formula for spreading COVID is just nonsense. Though she went on to say COVID itself is nothing much to worry about, a conclusion she reached after a chat with a mate in Sydney. I was like, you know, the death rate's quite low, eh? And she was like, oh, is it? So look over at New South Wales. We're, freak- we're, we're sitting here in New Zealand going, oh, my gosh, New South Wales. New South Wales, they're going, oh, my gosh, it's a lovely day. Let's go to the beach. And off they go. So if they're not that freaked out because they've got their jabs, don't worry about it. Don't be as freaked out. Let's get on with it. Which is just... Got to be a bit more rational, eh? Less fearful, more rational. News Talk ZB. But checking the day's news from Sydney, rather than just the vibe from one of Heather's mates, showed that freedom to go to the beach depends on not living in a COVID hotspot or LGA. Uh, five household... Uh people can, from the same household, can enjoy a picnic for a couple of hours. Outside the L, that L, the LGAs, of course, five adults from uh, vac- fully vaccinated from the same LGA or five kilometres from their homes. That was Australia's Channel 7 News that same day, and on Wednesday, the Mayor of Fairfield in Western Sydney was telling Channel 9 News in Australia this... I mean, I told the Premier yesterday about a case that whilst the police are checking for people's IDs on the, Sydney, on, on the beaches over the weekend to make sure that they keep people out, here in Western Sydney we had a couple that got fined, an elderly couple that just went to the supermarkets to buy their groceries, to help each other out with their groceries. Something needs to be changed. These, this divide needs to be taken down. This wall needs to be taken down. Not quite as free and easy across the ditch as Heather Duplessy Allen would have her listeners believe. Now that same day on her show, she also posed this question. Right now, Emeritus Professor of Medicine at Auckland University, Des Gorman. Hi, Des. Good day, Heather. Is this lockdown working? No, uh, sadly not. 
And she wasn't the only one in the media asking if lockdowns were working and if time might be up now for our national elimination strategy. Hayden Donnell took a look at that and more on Midweek Media Watch this week on Nights with Brian Crump last Wednesday. If you missed it, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app, or it's in our podcast feed available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard from media freedom advocate Peter Grester, who was famously jailed for more than a year in Egypt while working for Al Jazeera back in 2014. And before that, he was a BBC reporter in Afghanistan. And he told us last weekend how worried he is about journalists working in Afghanistan today now that the Taliban have taken over there. Now, since then, journalists have reported being beaten, harassed and obstructed in their work. Among them, RNZ's own regular correspondent there over recent years, Bilal Sawari, who told Nine to Noon all about it last Monday. Obviously, that is something uh, that should never be taken lightly if a Taliban fighter or commander comes and inquires about you or if there's a knock on your door. Because they're not coming to have a cup of green tea with you. They're coming uh, with, with deadly consequences. And visits like that from the Taliban prompted Bilal Sawari reluctantly to leave Afghanistan, along with many others lately. The mass exodus of the Afghan media family uh, means that one of the biggest achievements of the last 20 years uh, is, is, you know, gone. It, it's, it's, it, it literally, like, vanished. Now, a colleague who was stunned to see Bilal Sawari on the way out of his own country was the veteran BBC correspondent, Lise Doucette. People like Bilal, they're the 9-11 generation. They came of age after the Taliban were ousted. They grabbed the opportunities, this window of international engagement, getting the best education they could find, getting opportunities. And their identity has been forged in Afghan soil with their feet firmly on the ground. And now that ground has been ripped away from them. How do you carry on with this, the war in your head? How do you find peace of mind? Everything about your life, your identity, the life you lived and loved is gone. How do, how do you begin again when you still haven't, what you left behind is still, is still part of you? The BBC's Lise Doucette there talking to Canada's CBC Radio last week about Bilal Sawari. But Bilal himself told Nine to Noon this week, after 20 years of reporting the post-9-11 war in his country, he wasn't going to give it up now that he's based in Toronto. And another journalist who knows all about a lifelong commitment to reporting conflict, including one in his own country, is the BBC's Peter Taylor. You say you provided diagrams of the mobile biological Trucks. Yes. You were making that up. Yes. And also, you constructed a model yes. of these trucks. Again, you made that up. That was Peter Taylor back in 2012 interviewing Rafid Almed Alwan Al Janabi, codenamed Curveball, who was a crucial source on supposed weapons of mass destruction, which helped make the US case for invading Iraq nine years earlier. Now, Curveball admitted to Peter Taylor his intelligence was in fact a lie. But Peter Taylor cut his teeth on reporting terrorism and espionage in one single unresolved conflict that was, for him, far closer to home. And this year is the centenary of partition, the legislation that divided the island into two separate states in 1921, separated by a border. 
For the past 50 years, Peter Taylor has been covering the story of Ireland's last 100 years divided into north and south. And this year, he looked back on all of that in a remarkable film for the BBC called simply Ireland After Partition, which begins like this. So why is an Englishman still looking at the Irish question? Don't say I never bought you anything, Peter. What do I owe you? You owe me nothing. After he's been studying it, following it, reporting it for 50 years. Well, that's a good question, and the first one I put to Peter Taylor. It started with the awful day that became known as Bloody Sunday, at the end of January 1972. British paratroopers, my paratroopers, me being a Brit, shot dead 13 innocent Catholic civil rights marchers. None of them were armed. Uh, All of them were innocent. I knew nothing about Ireland before I went over to cover Bloody Sunday. Uh, I didn't really understand why there were two bits to the island, why it had been partitioned, how it had been partitioned, and what the impact of it was. And I will never forget this sort of eerie silence. There was nobody around. It was quite early in the morning, and there was blood still fresh on the ground. Uh, And then I went round knocking on doors with considerable trepidation, me being a Brit. People, far from slamming the door in my face or being abusive, uh, invited me in and were were delighted, they told me, that I'd taken the trouble as, as an Englishman to actually ask them what had happened because they didn't trust the British media. Here am I, a young journalist, setting foot in any part of Ireland for the first time, knowing nothing about the history, nothing, knowing nothing about why this had happened. And I remember saying to myself, you know, Peter, start trying to find out. And I spent the next 50 years doing just that, trying to find out and make sense, and also critically trying to explain to an audience, a British audience, primarily an English audience, that really didn't want to know about Northern Ireland. So, Peter, now that you're at a point where you can look back over 50 years of covering the story, you know, half of the time of Ireland under partition, which, which, as you point out in the film, was actually meant to be a temporary measure and now still unresolved, what is the value of having that 50-year uh, body of work? You know, If you'd given up after 20 years, would you regret it now? I, I think I would have done. There was one occasion in 1976 when I seriously considered stopping. I interviewed a, a prison officer. Uh, in the Mays prison, this is 1976. He was the secretary of the Prison Officers Association. He was called Desmond Irvine, a lovely, lovely man. And he was willing to be interviewed because he was prepared to say that he could understand why um, IRA prisoners wanted political status. There was a protest because the government regarded them as criminals. They said, we're not criminals, we are prisoners of war. On that issue, he said, I can understand why they feel the way that they do. Before he did the interview, I made sure, I said, Desmond, are you sure you want to do this? You're happy? He said, yes, I think it's important that, that, that I do it. I suppose one could say that a person who believes sincerely in what he is doing and is prepared to suffer for it, that there must be a certain measure of respect which you give to him. He gave a brilliant interview for which he was roundly applauded, and applauded by many of his fellow prison officers too. And then the IRA shot him dead, murdered him about two weeks after the interview. You even went to his funeral, didn't you, Peter? I went to his funeral. I was absolutely mortified. I couldn't believe it. And, And I went to the IRA or to Sinn Féin and said, 
he was actually understanding what you were doing, and then you go and shoot him dead. You know, what, what are you about? You know, I just can't understand that. And they said uh, he was shot not because of the interview. He was shot because he was secretary of the Prison Officers Association. After his his killing, uh, I received a phone call from a journalist in Belfast who said, uh, Peter, I want to know how it feels to have blood on your hands. And I was, I thought, you know, that's it. You know, I've got too close, too involved. I've had enough. You must have been rather exposed, though, yourself, because not only are you talking to some very dangerous people, uh, you know, forming relationships with terrorists, who in some of your films are admitting to murders. Maybe there were things the authorities already knew about, but um, those are extraordinary admissions to get face-to-face on camera and on the record. You've got guns. Yes. And you're prepared to use them. True. And you have used them. Yes. Were you prepared to kill? Without question. You knew what you were letting yourself in for? Without question. With your eyes wide open? Totally. My decision. And made by me. And me alone. But you yourself were reporting on things like security policy, you know, those emergency powers you mentioned, even dealing with, you know, the individuals who were uh, in later years in secret trying to broker peace deals and establish contacts between the different parties. Uh, this must have exposed you to personal risk yourself as well as, you know, the people you were talking to like Desmond Irvin. I was talking to all sides. I was talking to the IRA, to the provosts. I was talking to loyalists, to the UDA, the UBF. I was talking to army intelligence. I was talking to police, RUC, special branch. And I was also talking to uh, members of the intelligence services. When asked what I was prepared to discuss, I said, I'm prepared to discuss anything you like. Including structures of withdrawal from Ireland. Whatever that may mean. The worry was the so-called you know, terrorist on both sides, both Republican and loyalist, might think that I was actually working for the intelligence services. Uh, and I occasionally had dreams about me being arrested and interrogated by the IRA or loyalists. Now, when people on both sides think, suspect you're working for the intelligence services, that's quite chilling. The people you know, that I interviewed, the people... Uh, that I made films around and about could always judge my uh, you know, integrity, to use a slightly pompous word, by what they saw on screen. They thought I had been fair. So it was that which was my, my shield and defender, if you like. Back in 1970s, you followed two groups of children, Catholic children and Protestant children, mm-hmm. who were taken by a group to go on holiday time together out of their environment in a way they never could when they were in it in Belfast. Will you see the other children of the other religion when you go back to Belfast? No, not at all. Be a, when I go home, it'll be the last time I'll see them. I'd love to stay here, but I can't, so I must go back and the children were astonishing and astonishingly mature and very moving. Six Catholic and six uh, Protestant children on holiday to Wales, to Butlin's holiday camp. And I thought it would be a good idea to film them in their home environment. 
and see once outside of Northern Ireland if they began to do something they'd never done before, which is talk to members of the other side. I went to Belfast to try and find some of these children. There wasn't really enough there to make a film about it, but, but one of them, I got a, a WhatsApp from Joe, who was from the Republican family, and he said he'd been able to keep out of jail and not get involved, he said, with the IRA, because his hobby was pigeon fancying, pigeon, comp pigeon flying apparently is is a non-sectarian <laughs> uh, hobby unlike sport and and other uh, activities he'd been able to keep out of trouble thanks to his pigeons the films i was making which were reflecting situations on the ground at the time like on security policy broadcasting events which were making news and, and headlines was fairly straightforward because the audience knew why it was important. But what I tried to do in those films was to explain, you know, what, how and why these things were happening, like police interrogation uh, in the late 1970s when IRA suspects and loyalist suspects too were being uh, basically beaten, abused by RUC detectives to get them to sign confessions, which would be the basis for putting them in jail. But when I came to make longer films and big series, the reaction was uh, from many people, thank you for doing it. You know, for the first time, we begin to understand what it was all about. And you can only engage people if they understand and empathise with what the problem is and why it is. Well, that's what I tried to do, both with the contemporary reporting and in the big series uh, and longer programmes that I did, like My Journey Through the Troubles, which was the precursor of Ireland after partition. Uh, and I think that's, that's what the 50 years has enabled me to do, uh, which I've spent a lot of time you know, unravelling, investigating how the British came over many, many, over decades to persuade the IRA finally to give up the so-called armed struggle, and concentrate on politics. An historic agreement for peace in Northern Ireland has been reached within the past few minutes. Is what an astonishing story it is, and what a, what a triumph of political initiative and political determination to go from bloody Sunday and internment through to the Good Friday Agreement. You also, because you're an expert in terrorism, uh, when after 9-11, looking at Al-Qaeda and intelligence gathering and, and all of that, in fact, the last time you were on Radio New Zealand National um, was when you'd spoken to that source curveball who's discredited in intelligence, proved to be you know, so, yes, such yes. a problem. Just finally, we here in New Zealand, we had no experience of, of terrorism, at least not our post-colonial modern times, if you like, but uh, 2019, March 15th, we had those mosque attacks just become such a landmark in our country now. But do, do we need, as a media, perhaps need to have a focus a bit like yours, dedicated journalists who, who know this stuff, nasty as it is to bury yourself in as a career. We actually need people dedicated to it and a media prepared to explore it. I think it's really important that that happens. I have you know, many colleagues who are you know, equally expert in the Irish field and who've done you know, remarkable work. It's not just me. 
many other colleagues who work in the field of terrorism, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and uh, Islamist extremism. Specialist journalism requires the journalists to have a deep understanding, you know, met some of the participants, uh, talked to them, analysed them, and then to reflect what they think of the, quotes enemy. In other words, you know, what we are up against or what you in New Zealand are up against after the, the dreadful mosque attack attacks. You know, it's such a sensitive issue and it's not straightforward. The, the viewers, the readers, your listeners may well have, you know, an understandably prejudiced view about the enemy like we had for years and years and years about the IRA. And yet, and yet, finally, the IRA were brought to the negotiating table, encouraged by the intelligence services from utter despair and mayhem, epitomized by Bloody Sunday and what followed when I first set foot in Northern Ireland in 1972 to where we are today. And there is, there is a piece, it's not a perfect piece, there's still a threat from uh, dissident groups. Why, you know, why am I still doing it? Why am I still covering Ireland after all these years? And I say because the Irish question has still not been resolved, and that remains the case. That was Peter Taylor, who spent half a century covering conflict and terrorism in Northern Ireland and the search for peace there. He's raided his own remarkable archive for Ireland After Partition, a recent documentary for the BBC to mark the centenary this year of the partition of Ireland back in 1921. Now there's more from him in the online version of this story on the RNZ website. Just look for the title, Peter Taylor, 50 Years Focused on a 100-Year Conflict. But that's all we have for you this weekend on Media Watch, though we'll be back with more on the media on Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Nights with Brian Crump. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.